0: The secular paradigm forces the Muslim to adopt its own language, saying that something is morally wrong from the Islamic lens is morally wrong under a secular paradigm, right? It becomes really tricky territory to kind of navigate. We have to ask ourselves, what kind of impact is this having on the way that you and I as Muslims conceptualize our faith?
1: As-salamu and welcome back to Dogma Disrupted. Today we're having another discussion on secularism, whereas before we talked about the history of secularism and debunked some of the myths about secularism, today we're going to be looking at where it leaves us as Muslims today in the West. What are the pressures that we feel under the secular order? How does it affect the way that we relate to our faith and to Islam? And to break down this discussion, we've brought a very special guest with us today, uh, Sister Dania Hanini. Welcome very much to the program.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So we talked just to give a very, very brief summary, you know, secularism sort of positions or postures as this clean separation between church and state, between religion and society, when in reality, it's anything but. It's not a separation. It's rather uh, a force that produces a new type of religion and a new type of society and has a bunch of different sort of values and preferences that come along with it one of the sort of avenues of power that it exercises on all religions is a power that privatizes religion so i was hoping that you could start us off by talking about what does the privatization of faith look like in general and for us as muslims
0: uh, Um, I think this is a wonderful place to start our conversation because I think, inshallah, as the conversation rolls out, much of the blowback that we see in the way that we as Muslims conceptualize and practice our deen under a secular paradigm um, is because of this one of the reasons because of the stipulation of the privatization of of, of faith um, itself. So what is private privatization kind of rest on there? are A couple of assumptions. The first being that under secularism, um, the 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 reality of stripping religion from the public sphere requires that religion itself is to be defined um, and and or reconfigured rather um, by that by that new kind of stipulation. And what I mean by this is, in order for religion to be separated from the p- public domain, um, it needs an active kind of um, it needs to go through that active process of being redefined to fit neatly in that um, public sphere. And, um, you know, in this case, it's at the state's dispense as to what is acceptable religious practice and what is unacceptable religious practice. So in the case of, of you and I as Muslims, uh, that should kind of set off some red flags, right? Um, does this or are the implications now that Islam is only to be privatized, only to be something very specific and unique to the individual experience? Um, and in the process of doing so, uh, is Islam stripped of its universal vision and and and? and an application. Um, And so generally speaking, when we talk about privatizing faith, what that necessitates is that, you know, all faiths kind of hold the same epistemic weight, right? And in the process of doing so, you have feeling Um, Trump dogma and Trump principle, because again, it is something that's supposed to be deeply personal um, 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 to the individual.
1: So what you're saying is that in the secular order, there's no evaluative framework or evaluative language to arbitrate between different sort of rival Uh, moralities. If a Christian is saying then we should turn the other cheek in the situation and a Muslim is saying no rather it's uh, tooth for a tooth then we don't have any language to even come to a conclusion as to which would be a more appropriate or which would be a better course of action. Is that fair?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. What the secular model does is it um, it robs this idea of truth with a capital T, right? And that's kind of the the um, trademark of like a postmodern world that we live in, right? And how this kind of, um, or what this does is it actually just creates a buffet of choices for the individual consumer to choose and select what their kind of, um, what their flavor of spirituality slash religion looks like um, in, in today's context. And I think what's even more, so, of a blowback, um, you know, kind of along the same thread is is in in our communities we see this impacting just the way in which um, we, um, you know, we we talk about Islam. Right, and 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 what I mean by this is sometimes you'll find it normalized that Islam to me is right. We can have certain political figures in power say, you know, my Allah is a she, and it's under a secular paradigm, it's totally it's totally valid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what this does is it offers, privatization of faith offers this process of personalization of of religion where you really do bypass um, the principles, the Islamic Aqida in many ways, and it just becomes a matter of picking and choosing. Mm.
1: It's almost like sort of unmooring it or untethering it from the gravity that is both provided by believing that there is a as you said, a truth with a capital T, like this is the reality of what it is. And it makes it into, well, my interpretation is just as equal as anybody else's interpretation. 1400 years of scholarship, I can throw it all away or I can delegitimize it by saying, well, they were mostly men or patriarchy or whatever. Um, and really, and that's significant, you know, because one of the, one of the responses from the sort of Muslim progressive sphere sphere to the navigating differences document was exactly on this point. I, I forget the language that they use, but the title of the, in, in response to the navigating differences document, which was a document that attempted to reassert that epistemic weight and reassert sort of that this is what Islam is, and this is what Islam says, and you can either get on board or, or not. Um, the the response from sort of folks who have maybe internalized secularism, um, un, you know, sort of unwittingly, was that well, hey, we have just as much as right as you do to interpret Islam, and we have just as much right to uh, speak for Islam as you do. Which you're saying, and I'm also saying, is actually very very problematic uh, and a very twisted way of looking at it.
0: Absolutely. And the last thing that I'll just kind of add here is. Um, you know, all this takes place within the idea of conceptualizing Islam, but I think when it translates over to practice, you also find that it's becoming more and more popular in, in our local communities of, you know, Muslim youth saying, well, you know what, if I don't feel, quote unquote, benefits of certain ibadat then mm-hmm. is that a free pass for me to kind of drop what I'm doing? Right. Again, showing that shift of mindset of, you know, religion is supposed to, you know, satiate the individual fancy, right? Mm-hmm. And so, again when we talk about Islam as a complete way of life, a worldview, and we talk about Islam as quite literally meaning submission, right? This is a complete shift of perspective and practice.
1: And by that same logic, then we could say, well, I feel more spiritual sort of connection by doing yoga or meditation than I do with Salah. And so I should then be entitled to basically do those things in place of, or displacing, what we know is actually authentic guidance from Allah Subh'anaHu Wa which is a very scary thing. Um, So that's interesting because that sort of addresses one segment of the population which is sort of very much at war, whether they know it or not, very much at war with normative Islam, with um, that epistemic authority and weight that you're talking about. But there's also segments of the Muslim population that are sort of card-carrying members, they self-understand as submitting as etc. And yet secular power also sort of shapes the way in which they relate to their own faith um, as any, uh, like a large and and vast tradition, maybe it forces them to emphasize certain things over others, um, or it causes them to be very aware or hyper aware of certain things over others. Could you give us some, shed some light on this phenomenon?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think you you noted here a really important point. Um, Secularism impacts people very differently, right? But it is pervasive thought, so meaning every single one of us is going to taste or, or be touched by it at some in some shape or form, right? Some a little bit more concretely than others, um, or, or maybe a little bit more, um, you know, um, identifiable than others. But I, as far as the way in, in which secularism perhaps is a little bit more subtle or subtly influential, we see this emphasis on the fardain, right? Even again in our communities and the way that you and I perhaps envision Islam. Um, you know, many times what we think about Islam fits neatly into this, you know, individualistic um, mode of practice. So what we'll find is, you know, the individual obligations like the fiqh of salah and unslam and, and, and zikah, those are the things in the heart softeners, those are the things that really get the spotlight in in our communities, and that typically is what kind of yields the greatest number of attendance or attendees for programs. Right. You find some of those more um, deep. I wouldn't want to call them deeper sciences, but you find maybe within, you know, the the Islamic sciences not getting as many people because perhaps they don't feel or the Muslim population doesn't feel that they're as relevant to study than the individual ibadat and things that pertain to themselves. Mm. Right. And so when we talk about Islam being a comprehensive system um, that that asserts the fact that we're not kind of all living on an island ourselves, that the social and, 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 and the collective are very much part and parcel of our dean.
1: Right. Well, so we could like um, concretize that or illustrate that by maybe, so what's very much on the radar of practicing Muslims in the West are things like dhikr and salah. Obviously, and we're not demeaning those things and we're taking away from their, their significance and their relevance and their centrality. But to show that what's completely off the radar, for example, would be like how we as Muslims should be setting up our families or setting up our communities in a way that we have enough sort of collective gravity and collective power power to let's say protect our kids in the public schools to make sure that they have the freedom to be able to pray in school or to get out of you know LGBT curriculum or things like that things that are sort of again as you said they're they're not just working at the level of the individual they're working at the community level like who are your neighbors where are the muslims living like what are the sort of you know, um, do we have like sort of a, a guild of like Muslim business owners, right? Um, even coordination of zakat, to be frank, right? The, the coordination of zakat is very, very sporadic. Like is the zakat from the suburbs getting to the inner city or is it going somewhere else? Um, these are sort of, are these, is that a fair sort of representation of some of the issues maybe that, that we're de-emphasizing and that are off our radar because we're kind of funneled into this way of, of relating to Islam in a very hyper-individualistic sort of way?
0: yeah absolutely i I'd, I'd agree with that statement I think that also in the way in which our 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 you know perhaps again just me having background with community work with within you know the youth or or, or youth work within the community I will say it's like using them as case studies is typically is, is is my go-to but what I will say is if you were to ask them what Islam is to them typically many many would present it as just being a good person mm-hmm. right which boils down to what individual ethics ie. Hmm. centering on the individual. So yeah, I, I definitely think that there is this in focusing on perhaps more of the Fardain and, and and it's not necessarily this like intentional um, we're going to bypass focusing in on or having conversations on other types of kifaya I think I think what it does is it just shows the aftermath the byproduct of living in a secular world mm. that really pushes religion to um or, or pushes it to the private sphere, so much so that some you know part of the religious religion isn't even in our sphere anymore. Mm-hmm. Um and so yeah, I I definitely see it as a natural byproduct. This isn't to say though that Farat Kifaya communal obligations are completely off the table. Mm-hmm. I, alhamdulillah we do have Funeral services that are, are um, you know, arranged, congregational prayer, um, um, elements of social and you know welfare programs, but um, it, it's not, it's not a complete holistic
1: mm-hmm. kind of. Um, Something just occurred to me when you when you were speaking about that that I had never considered before, but I think is extremely profound. Is that think about how often the question is asked: Can I be a good person without religion? And the framing of that question is completely individualistic, right? Um, And puts us, honestly, on a weak terrain. And even though we respond and say, well, no, you can't define what it means to be good without Islam or without religion, or, you know, what does it mean to be a person? The different ideas of being a person um, are different depending if you believe in an afterlife or believe in a God or not. But there's a whole, uh, uh, there's another level to, to critique that is that why is that the question about merely being a good person, as opposed to, can we achieve a good society without Islam? Or can we achieve a good society without religion? That would be sort of a more sort of um, radical question to ask because it questions the, the, the centrality of merely being a good individual, which has a sort of secular logic at play.
0: And I think, you know, to add on to that at, at an even more fundamental level, um, what is good? Who gets to decide good? And so I think these conversations are so important to be had, especially with our youth that are carrying secular liberal uh, liberal assumptions um, without realizing.
1: Subhanallah. Well said. Um, So you talked that, okay. there are we're not saying that the Kifayah are completely abandoned. There are some that sort of are more acceptable to uh, to practice and, and are more front and center than others. Um, one of the that draws, or at least that occurs to me that sort of is impacted by the, the push of secular power to privatize is the idea of prohibiting what's evil and al is that, you know, a lot of times or too often in American society, we are pushed to merely sort of go along with the flow and um, assimilate and accept and not make any waves as opposed to trying to call out the evils um, in our society on terms that are recognizably Islamic terms with the assumption that we can contribute, that we actually have something to add and to offer to the society by intervening in that sort of way. Do you have any thoughts on on this sort of thing?
0: Absolutely. So. You know, Having, I think, I think starting at at you know maybe on a foundational level, when we talk about communal obligations, right? I think the first question is, well, like, what defines our community, right? Under a secular paradigm, you have the nation state emphasize this idea of national identity, and that's, that's, that's that that is what first comes to mind um when 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 discussing this this concept. So uh, when we talk about what we do within our specific contexts so over here, you know, in 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 a, in a US context, yes, things like congregational prayer and um and and funeral services, etc are 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 taken care of to a certain degree. But when we think about, you know, as Muslims having like more of an ummatic lens that our communities aren't just, you know, our local communities around us or our national communities around us, that actually we are part and parcel of, of a part of the fabric of a, of a broader collective, mm-hmm. um, then necessitates that we think about our role in or our place in that, that broader umma. And so when we think about the atrocities that are taking place right now in Janine, um, or, you know, Modi's BJP party, or we take a look at the Uyghur Muslims, uh, that should make us uncomfortable, and it should put Kifaya back on our radar, right? About, well, what are you and I have to do outside of individual kind of, you know, actions? What as 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 a collective can and should we do to uplift the ummah. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. But I think that, you know, dialing it back and taking a look at, you know, the spheres of Fult Gifaya that we can perhaps navigate in our context today, um, you know, on, on our local context, I, I think that um, it, is, it is a very tricky kind of terrain to navigate. And kind of going back to what you were saying about the language that we use to kind of check off um or 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 make our our um kind of impact seen heard known and impactful um it 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 is it is really tricky because it does you know rest on liberal secular you know um sensitivities of language of practice and we see that in you know the first thing that comes to mind is the lgbtq discourse right um job security is on the line when it comes to certain elements of of commanding the good and forbidding the evil. Um, and so kind of navigating these fears, it, it definitely proves to be, um, um, tricky. Um, yeah,
1: no, that's, that's extremely um, important. And I, I think one thing that, um, that it brings my attention to is how kifaya requires a certain amount of power building and it requires a certain amount of activism and coordination. Um, and so it might be off people's radar because that is work that maybe people are unfamiliar with, or maybe they're not accustomed to doing, but you need to develop, we're, we're not talking about doing anything illegal, but we're talking about building capacity within our society to have, um, to have a role, right. When you're talking about Palestine and we've seen how even the prevalence of social media and sharing through social media, uh, images and videos, the, the, antagonism, uh, around sort of, uh, and, um, and, the, the places of worship, how even that within the last few years has started to influence the terms upon which, uh, the debate is being talked about and and people's feelings towards it. Right. So we're not talking about anything other than building capacity, right. It's like, if, if we have a, a communal, Responsibility and we have an obligation to our brothers and sisters in Palestine or in China or in other places, then we have to reverse engineer it and be like, okay, like what is it going to look like to shift the discourse or to actually create meaningful action from what we can do? And what are all the steps in between that we have to follow in order to build the capacity for that action? What types of organizations need to exist? What types of lobbying needs to exist? What types of whatever it is? Um, so that's, you know, that, that requires us to, to go back to the drawing board and, and think really carefully about, you know, what our, our duty is. And you, I think said it very, very well is that this is what's required of us. Actually, this actually demonstrates our loyalty and our sincerity to our brothers and sisters in Islam. Um, the second thing that you mentioned that I, I'd like to, to kind of riff off a little bit is again, what you said was the, the, the discourses that we use and how we assert ourselves, right? So. Um, you know, we talked on, on the episode we did on human rights about how sometimes you might deploy a certain discourse because it's going to be legible, right? It's going to be understood in a very immediate way. And people aren't ready really to like hear something deeper or something that's a more fundamental critique. But the, the, the risk that we run by only deploying those discourses is that they start to do work on us and they start to actually displace the discourses and the values that we have from Islam. And I think a really, as you said, the LGBTQ sort of issue, especially in public schools is a really, um, is, is very illustrative of, of this sort of thing we have in Montgomery County, Maryland, for example, you know, how are we going to push back? Well, okay. If the choice is initially to say, well, we want opt out and we want parental choice, right? Like, okay, Parental choice is something, it might be an immediate stopgap sort of solution, but that's very, very different from saying, this is wrong, this is immoral, this is anti-family, we're pro-family, you know, so the choices that we make in these sorts, in this chess match is really important. How do you see um, secular power funneling us into using certain discourses over others, and what's the work that that is doing on sort of our inside and how we relate to Islam?
0: that's yeah, a fantastic question um i will say that if we were to go back to the lgbtq issue um and 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 take a look at how the muslims have been not necessarily how we've kind of been cornered to use secular li- liberal language to um you know be able to be heard and, and to be taken seriously and to kind of reach those those goals. They've all had to be, you know, done to a certain degree pragmatically, right? Using secular liberal language, constitutional rights, right? This goes against my constitution. So oftentimes what we see is the secular paradigm forces the Muslim to adopt its own language to justify religious behavior, practice, and conception versus using our own our own religious language, right? Saying that something is morally... Um, you know, wrong uh, from the Islamic lens is morally wrong under a secular paradigm, right? So it it becomes really tricky territory to kind of navigate. And I will say that with time, pragmatism might be, you know, might be the vehicle through which we check off, um, you know, short-term wins. But as far as the long-term goes, uh, we have to ask ourselves that what is this doing? What kind of impact is this having on the way that you and I as Muslims Kind of conceptualize our faith. Are we doing things? Are we functioning via that 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 roadmap of secular liberal language, or are we able to kind of tap into our own, um, you know, Islamic aqidah, um, our own worldview, and assert um, the ability to practice because of that worldview, and not not having to kind of couch ourselves in secular liberal language, right? So when we take a look at even certain ibadat, the way that we justify um, or feel the need to even justify certain ibadat, um, we find that we kind of lean into our comfort zone um, of secular liberal language. That you know, if we were to take the the example of like hijab, for example, right, that it's not just enough to say it's an obligation from Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and it's not just an obligation in having a piece of cloth, but also the 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 aura that's covered, the definition of what that aura is, um, what that hijab looks like to a certain degree. That's all outlined, but in secular liberal language what makes it comfy and almost justifiable to the masses is, um, well, no, it's liberation, it's empowerment, it's free choice, Mm -hmm. right? And so with time, what that does is it changes or impacts um, the Muslim psyche itself, right? Mm -hmm. How we view our own deen, kind of going back to that first point that we made about how Islam is becoming, um, you know, at least in the Muslim mind is, you know, to a certain degree, um, a a matter of a series of choices that you get to have a hand in um, Mm -hmm. making.
1: And also taking away that, again, evaluative language or that evaluative grammar, because if it becomes simply a matter of choice, if I'm defending my hijab on the logic or the principle of choice, then I've asserted at the same time that Another choice would be equally valid and equally praiseworthy. So, to choose to not do it would be just the same as far as evaluating actions when that's actually eroding our faith and eroding what our faith stands for. That not all, something doesn't become valuable merely because you choose it. Actually, it's valuable whether Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala approves of it or not. Um, and that's an extremely important distinction that needs to be made. So what, what you're saying and what I'm saying, I think, is that we need to be careful. We almost need to operate at two different registers or at two different levels that we might have to deploy certain discourses and languages, et cetera, ideas in order to, to get those short-term wins. But we have to, at the same time, be working to identify what are the obstacles that are in our way for sort of having our own language be read and registered within society, right? In order to call out something as immoral, as wrong, right? What are the things that are standing in the way of that being forceful uh, and that being taken seriously? And how do we kind of position and maneuver ourselves uh, to get to the point where one day, because these things are all in flux, right? People act like it's just like, oh, there's nothing you can do about it. Oh no, they're all in flux. So we can actually work to a point where one day that will mean something to lo- to larger society to say that this is wrong, this is immoral, this is against what the creator wants, um, can actually be read and, le- and, and felt as something that's significant instead of just being sort of religious lunatics, how it will be read kind of currently.
0: Absolutely. And I think just the reminder that you know, to think long term. Um, you know, you know, functioning within the sphere of of comfort, i.e., using secular liberal language to 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 make those wins. I, I think, that to have those wins, I think what we have to constantly remind ourselves is. Um, you know, over time, you lose your Islam and you lose yourself, right? And so that's that's the biggest loss that you can have in the name of trying to secure those Islamic rights. You, you long term might lose your Islam, mm-hmm. and so it becomes it's again conversations that need to be had with 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 people who who are are are, are more familiar and, and and more knowledgeable on this. But what I will say is, I think I think it's it's an important and, and tricky kind of um, um, conversation that, that that needs to be had because pragmatism, you know. Uh, most in most cases, I, th- I think pragmatism long term has some detrimental effects.
1: Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, well said. Um, so the sort of balance. So we've talked about okay. There's the the balance between Far and That that's one of the sort of um, cracks or fissures or sort of downstream consequences of secular power on us. Another one is sort of the language and discourses and values that we use and we deploy when we're even advocating for Islamic stances and normative sort of Islamic practice. Another thing that I know that both you and I are very passionate about is how the secular sort of, um, our knowledge has been secularized. And so even our understanding of what it means to have knowledge about Islam versus knowledge of anything else is something that is under a lot of reconfiguration uh, due to secular power, could you could you talk about how this affects us as Muslims?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the ways that we can look at this is by taking a look at perhaps our Sunday school curriculums or Islamic school um, curriculums. You know, um, the Sunday school model obviously being um, very different than the Islamic school model, just because it is that one day a week, three hours, with the hour and a half being you know pizza and playtime. So um, what what I will say is that. If we were to take a look at most of what these Islamic curriculums are for our youth, right, um, and and the reason why I think it's so important to focus in on on the curriculums aimed at youth specifically is because this is typically formative years, right? Mm-hmm. How you're building that Islamic akhida, and 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 those curriculums in, in many ways are, are reflective of what um, you know we deem as important. You know elements of Dean to, to kind of pass along to the next generation. Yes. What I will say is, um, you know, the curriculum that oftentimes is presented um, by you know very well intentioned people, very committed people to the you know to the community. Um, I will say most of it deals with, um, you know, loosely strung individual ethics. Right? You might have some, you know, abstract. Um, you know uh, concepts on Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala and the Prophet Sallallahu Little bits of seera, um, A lot of emphasis placed on akhlaq because we don't want you know rowdy Muslim kids. Um, and so you, what you find is really like this amalgamation of individual ethics kind of plated to our Muslim youth without the aspect of the contemporary. Oftentimes missing that really important um, component of connecting those little dots of of, of ethics. Um, and and principle to this broader framework, this this frame of reference, i.e., the Islamic aqidah in our worldview. Um, and so, what you find is that you know you have you know kids uh, you know that are that are graduated from these Islamic schools from pre K and sometimes they start them at like pre K too. I don't know how it works, but um, they start them they start them before kindergarten a couple of years, and then some of them stick through until senior year of high school. But they still have that very individual individualized um, mode of Islamic understanding, hmm. and that's not necessarily, um, you know, reflective on, um, you know, uh, the 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 efforts, so to speak, but or- more so on just the, the the curriculum and and perhaps again the the tricky territory that we're navigating in this secular world.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah there's no doubt I mean everybody it's the the aunties that teach the Sunday school are legendary everybody knows that they are the legends of the community they put in the most work but what we're calling for is some high level strategy and some high level thinking when it, we want all those efforts and that sincerity to be put to the best use possible and uh, there are certain structural elements there are certain sort of curriculum decisions there's some sort of ins- instruction uh, or pedagogical decisions that are being made that are actually making us waste a bunch of time um and there's like so so you lined out like some multiple different strata uh, upon which it's happening one of them is the even idea of just sort of like a patchwork you know sunday school where we only have three hours as you said it's not really even three hours and this is somehow supposed to compete with the you know eight hours a day or whatever it is, uh, five days a week, sort of assembly line of public education. And now what they're getting in the, even the elementary schools, the sort of programming that they're being fed. Um, it's just not enough. First of all, it's not, it's not even structurally like that amount of hours is not amount, is not a sufficient amount of hours to undo um, sort of the erosion of their, of their Dean that's happening in the, the normal world week. Um, but that's even assuming that those three hours are like super impactful and super like, (laughs) you know, um, with great curriculum and and excellent execution. And that's also not happening, right? So we have, um, a lot of different issues and both you and I, you know, are in Islamic education for youth. And so we're kind of on the ground level of this. We've both seen how Islamic studies is really treated as kind of a, a waste bin category. Um, and so it, what in sort of more classical curricula are, you know, separate subjects and separate sort of things like fiqh and hadith and tafsir and, you know, uh, and all these sort of different things. We just kind of throw them all together as, as Islamic studies. And then to add insult to injury, we demonstrate through our priorities and, and through our choices that this is not really a very important subject at all. Um, I remember when I, I think I spoke at ICNA last year about this, I took a a schedule from one of the prominent um, Islamic schools. So it was a a, five days a week school um, in the Chicago area, and they had Islamic studies switching off every other day with physical education, um, whereas the, the subjects that did not take a break. We're math and science and all the sorts of things that, you know, um, maybe we're communicating to our youth that there's a certain prioritization that's going on, that what is considered valuable knowledge and, and not so valuable knowledge um, is sort of, we can, we can talk a, a good game, right? We can kind of uh, say all the right things, but when it comes to the, how we're setting up these institutions, it often communicates these valuations and these priorities that are going on beneath the surface.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think the end goal really should be to present Islam as present, as operative, as relevant to lived experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that oftentimes, unfortunately, um our youth are shortchanged and then we question why they have a lack of yaqeen, right? Um we question why Muhammad wants to be called Mo in public school, um, for example, right? Um and then on top of that, there is that disjointed reality where we tell them you 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 know youth islam is important islam is important because we don't want them to lose themselves um oftentimes from you know immigrant background families coming to to the states not wanting their their, their kids to be lost but at the same time confusing that child by placing emphasis more so on um you know quote unquote academic study and 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 i do take you know i do find it problematic to even separate that, that like secular knowledge versus islamic knowledge for example but um i will say that oftentimes there's just a push to say you know have your basic ibadat in check um you know and and you should be good to go but you, you still have to be that doctor lawyer engineer right, right? Um, yeah um, and so again, there is that like deep divide. Now, if a, if a child says that they are serious about studying Islamic studies, and um, I know here in our community there was a mother expressing um, dissatisfaction with her, her son, basically saying he didn't want to go to college because he wanted to go study Islam. Um, and I and that. It, well, but for her, her her worry was, well, how is he going to quote unquote be successful?
1: Right, right, right. So again,
0: we're hyper fixated on the material. Um, and, and we don't realize that, you know, even if we were to take a look, just as a side note, um, a lot of the, the way that universities are set up um, internationally in the Muslim world is those in high school that earn the lowest of the lowest scores, uh, the only thing on the table for you in your future career path is Sharia studies. And I think that is so telling and so detrimental to like the trajectory we're on as an ummah. Like it's 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 baffling. Um, and so when you have Muslim youth that take interest in Islam and and are eager and hungry for knowledge, um, oftentimes they're, they're kind of that cap is put on on um, on their on their eagerness and their excitement.
1: Totally. And then we complain when we have religious scholarship that's disengaged or doesn't have sort of um, you know whether it's critical thinking and and sometimes that. Problem is that term is misused rather, um, but we we complain about the quality of our religious discourse in the West, and we look at who are we putting forth to study it and and engage in it and and sort of make it translatable and relatable to the masses, and we only have ourselves to blame. Um, the career aspirations for our youth is a huge issue. And I'm glad that you brought it up. You know, it's something that I usually refer to as the Holy Trinity in the Muslim community is that doctor, lawyer, engineer. Um, and that's simply not a, a realistic or a sustainable path forward. If we want to have people who are, you know, where are the, oh, you talk about curriculum. Okay, we're, we're, we're mentioning these things about Islamic schools or about weekend schools. Um, if you want to, do you, like how many Muslim homeschoolers that I know that they rely on Christian uh, curriculum because there is no valid sort of or, or or sort of workable Islamic curriculum for them to use when it comes to uh, specific subjects like English or, or science or things like that, right? You turn around and like, well, we have these ideas. We want Islam to be presented and unify like Islamicized science and Islamicized math and do this work or kind of restitching together, um, you know, the secular and the religious or re-sacralizing or re-sanctifying knowledge but then you turn around and it's like, who's gonna do the work? Who's going to write the curriculum? Who's going to, who's got the PhD in education administration? Or, And very few, honestly, like extremely few when it comes to the the, the Muslim community in the West. Uh, so we kind of, again, are standing in our own way. Um, we're good when it comes to, we have doctors, mashallah. We have lots of people in those fields. And uh, the Prophet wasalam, warned us about hubb al-dunya. He, he warned us about loving the world too much. And exactly what you said, I had the same experience. How many people, when they learn that their child has a passion for studying Islam, um, their reaction is not one of, of joy, um, but one of um, sort of despair. Uh, That just tells you everything that you need to know about where we're at as a community and how much that we've kind of clamped down on prioritizing the dunya over the afterlife. And no one's calling for, you know, sometimes you say, "Yeah, Imam, you know," but you know, we can't all just study, you know, the religion and we have to take care of the dunya. And my response to that is always, "Well, the the if the day comes where I see all of our teenagers just like spending all day in the masjid and they refuse to go out and you know do whatever." then, okay, I'll bring them back to the middle and I'll tell them about the importance of going and seeking their livelihood, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not the extreme that we're at right now. We're at the opposite extreme. And so we need to find the balance where we've got sort of all of our bases uh, covered. There's a lot of ways, there's a lot of ways, and we could probably have even an entire independent discussion um, about how this sort of valuation, this materialistic valuation has sort of, change the way that we relate to things but one thing that's significant is how our the, sort of the materialistic values that we have even as even the practicing muslims even the people who understand themselves as practicing uh, obedient muslims Is in sort of it affects our own tradition and how we relate to it, right? So we have the so-called, you know, Islamic Golden Age, right? Which if you and I say golden age, we're probably talking about the time of the Prophet Muhammad and the time of the Khalifa al-Rashidin. But most people, when they talk about the Islamic Golden Age, they're talking about Bayt al-Hikma, they're talking about the Abbasid period, the poetry, and then this and that, and the third. There are serious ways in which we've been indoctrinated to value the material and material success over the spiritual success. Um, and I'm hoping maybe you can just give a little bit more comment about about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um it is it is always interesting that you know um we it's it's, it's termed as like the golden age of Islam because it completely contradicts the hadith of the Prophet when he talks about the best generations. Um, and and he's he isn't referring to as uh, the umayyads and abbasids. So, you know, when we talk about how we even like the metric of success um for the muslim life yeah it it has nothing to do with the the material um you know yes we 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 all have to check off certain goals and 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 and, and play a role in this world but when we think about submission and we think about impact and we think about Holding on to our identity and the proliferation of Islamic knowledge um, and the strengthening of communities—that is our measure of success. <clears throat> if we're able to kind of not be a part of the Pew Research study of um, <clears throat> of like being one of the excuse me, I'm just gonna take a drink of water. <clears throat> I'm gonna restart that
1: if that's okay. That's
0: fine. Um, I'm just, yeah, I'm a little bit under the weather still.
1: Yeah, my luck here.
0: I mean, um, yeah. So if we talk about the golden age of Islam, and and we say that it completely contradicts the hadith, the prophet said them, um, where uh, you know the best of generations are clearly outlined. Right? He's not talking about this specific moment in time. It's not a reference to the Umayyad the Abbasids. Um, you 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 know, it's, it's this emphasis that we have kind of shifted in perspective to, to say our metric of success equals, um, you know, materialistic wins. And from the Muslim perspective, you can be Um, you know, if you, if you've got from, you know, a strong commitment, um, to your deen, submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, strong communities that have yaqeen, right? Where we don't have to fear of belonging to, and inshallah, we reach that day where we don't belong to that, that pure research study, one of the one in four who lose, who lose their religion and, 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 belongs to that category of nuns, right? Um, in, in, in the American context. Um, and those are wins, right? That is success. And so I don't think that the metric for success is to say, wow, 95% of our community or our youth are, um, you know, have X, Y, and Z careers um, and, and we've won, right? I think that if a clear measure of success is to say, well, does that Ahmed, uh, does that Fatima, is that Aisha, are they committed to the truth? And do they know it as being truth and want to spread that truth and stay committed to it hmm. um, forever? And do they feel that they can actually make impact on the world around them uh, via their Islamic lens um, and, and, and what the deen has to offer versus just simply money? Right. Um, so there's there's some food for thought there. And I know it's not as simple as say, you know, everybody kind of take on um the role of of, of jumping into Islamic studies. I think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has diversified this ummah and our talents and our strengths. And it's really just a matter of us identifying, doing that intrinsic work, identifying what our strengths are and tapping into them so we can make impact um in this world and that inshallah will be a source of reward in the hereafter.
1: Mm-hmm. Very well said. And and I really love the fact that you brought up that one of the goals and one of the sort of consequences of getting out of our own way and sort of realigning ourselves with this balance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Once for us and our perspective and our attitude and our disposition is that we're actually going to be able to uplift those around us. We're actually going to be able to contribute to society. And we as Muslims believe that Islam has the answers for, for everything. So if our society is struggling with particular sort of issues, um, then we're actually sort of depriving those around us by holding back or by getting lost in the dunya or, or sort of valuating ourselves and our children in just materialistic terms, when we should believe axiomatically that Islam can and will, if we let it, sort of solve whatever is facing us. Um, and that, ironically, <laughs> is probably what's going to get us more respect from other people who aren't Muslims rather than just trying to blend in and be like everybody else. So I want to take this really, really seriously, this idea that Islam will solve society's issues if we let it. Um, And so I I want to get your thoughts as to what are some of the um, most pressing issues that in North America or the United States in particular that we're facing? And how can Islam sort of provide an alternative if we kind of get out of the way and, and do the work to sort of show that to people and to demonstrate it?
0: Yeah, it's a huge question, and I think that it's a multi-layered question. If we're going to talk about one of the, you know, problems, I think that you know, are we talking about problems in the crisis of faith? Right, the fact that you have generations of 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 um, individuals who feel like they can actually live without purpose. Right, that's a huge problem. That obviously Islam um, has 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 the capacity um, and is the answer to. Um, and then on the flip side, we can see that you know, um, the real issues that exist around us, whether they be environmental issues, whether they be, you know, the breaking down of the, you know, traditional family and, and social structure and the fabric that that all rests on, um, you know, one would argue that these issues that are, you know, so prevalent and so clear and so damaging are, are at the societal level, are at the political level. And I think that in many ways they're caused by, nations, right? And so this, 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 I think this, this conversation is, is much larger than simply, you know, you know, we have environmental issues. Well, how does Islam's view of the environment and animal rights, um, you know, what are those, 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 those kind of principles that are in place that you and I as individuals can kind of enact, um, you know, in the most uplifted of ways. But I think that if we're going to talk about solutions through and through, these issues are caused on a large scale political level. And I think that there needs to be, you know, serious conversation on, um, you know, Islam as like a self-determined um, entity in these spheres right where we're not playing by other people's rules where we, we aren't having to couch ourselves in secular liberal language where we are able to take a look at our ourselves as a comprehensive system that can really replace the ills of society with with you know using our principles in hand not kind of doing that pastiche pack, patchwork um, and so i i take a look at this conversation i think it's 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 such a, a a deep conversation that needs to be had and part of the work that i guess it's just be like a nice shout out to 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 Um-matics with dr awayman and his and his team it's such an important endeavor may allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give them success upon success but um you know re-establishing that omatic view, re-establishing that vision of Islam as a self-determined entity, it's important. Now, if we're going to talk about the issues that surround us that we can kind of take individual steps towards perhaps alleviating or placing a band-aid on, um, yeah, we can take a look at those principles in isolation, I would argue, yeah. right? So, for example, if we were to take a look at you know, secular activism in 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 response to in regards to the environment versus Islamic activism yeah. might be talking about consumption, right? So I might I might take a look at that and say, well, you know what, uh, you know, maybe less consumption versus careful cons- consumption, for example, right? right? Um, Being an irresponsible consumer as per the, you know, the secular model versus taking a look at the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a moral obligation that's on me. right? Right. So those are those are, you know, within our individual capacity. But I think if we're talking about complete shift and change in in structure that takes a new structure, because clearly industrial nations um, you know, have create and will continue to create the most destruction. And I know Haddaq has a fantastic quote, um, where he says capitalism, industrialism, and the resultant destruction of natural habitat are not the work of nature. They are the effects of so-called progress. Mm-hmm. So in the case of changing kind of the dynamics that are around us, um, you know, I think it's going to take more than just Alleviating, quote unquote, via individual efforts, because that yeah. would be as ironic as it sounds—a secular kind of, um, you know, walk. But um, and it isn't to say that that has no place and that we yeah. shouldn't be trying within our own capacity. Because Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will ask each and every one of us, you know, uh, about what we do in within our realm of responsibility. But I think if we talk about truly creating lasting change, uh, we have to be honest in saying that these are political, economic structures that need to be you know, and, and, and broader, longer, deeper conversations with qualified individuals need to be had on how we can kind of carefully and creatively maneuver these within our Islamic principles.
1: Mm. Yeah. So that's wonderful. So just, just to put some meat on the bones there. Um, so we're, we're distinguishing between sort of like, Oh, I'm going to use uh, a metal water bottle instead of a plastic water bottle, which is the, sort of an individual choice versus like, you know, one of the most polluted lakes in the state is up here right next to Syracuse it was just an hour drive from us. There was a, uh, time period where legally they were just dumping like toxic sludge into the lake t- to the point where they killed all the living species in the lake, and now it's still like a, a, a radioactive mess, and nobody can swim in it. And you know the the, the cleanup is going to take decades, if not centuries, right? So looking at why is there even a legal possibility for that thing in the first place? Um, That's another level. And then even a further level beyond that is sort of, well, what's our attitude towards nature in the first place? Are we sort of operating under the assumption that, you know, the world is our oyster and and nature is just mute and brute and dumb, and we get to manipulate it and conquer it in the way that we like, which is sort of an enlightenment sort of orientation towards relating to it. Or is this a sacred trust? Are we given sort of a position of power and influence to intervene as an amana from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we're going to be responsible for every single thing, every single tree that could be cut down. We might be responsible for the, there's the, the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu that for the alim, that every single creature asks forgiveness for the alim hatta al-hitan fil bahr, right? Even the fish in the sea, because it's understood that somebody who's properly grounded or properly oriented, morally, um, they're not going to do those things. Like those those actions, and this is sort of the point of Halak and others, that those actions are off the table. They're not even part of the conversation because that person's Entire sense of what their purpose is in life and their sort of situatedness, well, like well, like who they are, is supposed to completely categorically make those decisions uh, impossible. They know that they're going to burn in hellfire, basically, <laughs> for or be punished in some sort of way um, if they were to do those sorts of things. So that's sort of like I, I always sort of laugh at how the secular sort of environmentalist movement. Um, hamstrings itself and, and it, it almost is, gets in its own way, much like the Muslim community does. Because for example, to, to pitch the idea as a problem of climate change, well now you've sort of, basically you've tied it to a result, which is the change and now you've made basically the locus of debate, is it changing or not? Now everybody who's against this, I like, know it's not really changing, or they're saying, well, it's changing, but this change is not human made, or it's a natural change as part of this larger cycle. You've lost the plot already, like you've lost the argument by even getting into the weeds with this type of argument in the first place. Whereas Muslims, we're not so consequentialist or utilitarian, we're not going to pitch the issue as just, well, if the climate is changing, that's when we step in and, and act. No, we're supposed to do the right thing from the beginning, right? Whether it has a negative consequence in the dunya or not, right? Like the Prophet said, if you have a sapling in your hand and the day of the judgment is, is, is established you plant this sapling, right? This has nothing to do with the consequences or or if the climate's changing or not changing, if the the globe is warming or not warming. Do the right thing, right? No matter what. And I think that's one of the especially with the environment that Islam sort of stands to to teach the world, right? Is that you do the right thing no matter what. And we don't just reduce it to the sort of materialistic or secularist logic where we're waiting now to say, oh well, now we have to prove scientifically whether it's really changing or not. And then they're going to accuse our scientists of fudging the numbers. And maybe we're tempted to fudge the numbers because we really want to prove to people that it's changing. It misses the whole point. Um, there's other areas that I'd, I'd like to see, you know, your, your ideas upon one of the things in addition to the environment, I think that is a colossal challenge for everybody and Muslims included is the, the social and familial fracturing that's going on. Families are sick and weak, right? The extended family is, has been almost broken by sort of the capitalist two income household and all this sort of stuff, you know, um, and it has tangible effects on children and how they're raised and it has tangible effects for, um, you know, when it comes to even people's religiosity, like what do they have available time to dedicate to, you know, um, what is Islam? How can Islam save the day when it comes to, uh, the family and to our, our social bonds?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Again, huge conversation probably could even be its own segment. But what I will say, just I guess to touch on that is, again, elements of, um, you know, establishing the fact, I guess, if we just dial it back a little bit, that each of us do not live on our own, uh, you know, island when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know, even if we to go back to the the two categories of fardain and fard kifaya, right? The fact that Islam creates that differentiation between individual obligations and communal obligations is an acknowledgement. It's an assertion that you belong to, or like the world and your lived experience and your role in it goes way beyond the self, right? That You actually, it's a series of rights on you and your rights on others. And so when we talk about, you know the fabric over like the social fabric of society and familial bonds. Obviously, we've got the sidlo him right? You've you, again, you've got this emphasis on community um, that even goes beyond just blood relations, right? Um, you know, emphasis on neighborly attachments and tons of hadith on 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 that. But what I will say is, it's it's this emphasis that you are not, you know, a, a lonesome ranger on your own, right? That you actually have an obligation to create that cohesiveness in society and to play a role. And so when we talk about, you know, kind of um, in today's context of people relocating because of jobs, right? Um, and everyone kind of being on an island on their own, then yes, you do have that natural blowback of um, not having support when it comes to raising the next generation of Muslim kids. You don't have the support or perhaps the resources to do your own kind of um, individualistic or individualized study, I should say, of Islam because you don't really have time, right? You're so focused on keeping your little world intact in that, you know, you you yourself don't have um, that space to to thrive in your own sphere, so to speak. So you know, there's there's wisdom in having you know, if we were to take a look at like the Islamic tradition, which encourages again those 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 strong bonds and and that that support and that upliftment. Um, you know, within that that broader category of community, um, there's wisdom in that. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I'm so so we're talking about like, you know, what are we prioritizing and how are we making our decisions? And and I think what we're trying to shed a light on is that it's considered acceptable to society to move to the other side of the country for a job if it's a promotion or to move away from your parents or to move away from your siblings. Um, but it has consequences. And we're trying to say that, you know, the the family structure in Islam is, is a normative thing. It's not just accidental. It's not just a matter of history. That's what they were doing at the time, is that, you know, when we see a sort of what some people would characterize as inequality when it comes to mirath, right, like inheritance, that there's an understanding there about how a family should operate. There's an understanding about how the relationships within a family should be you know have a certain proximity and have a certain amount of interdependence and that there's actually ironically more more freedom and happiness and leisure and you know just better results in general if we have a certain proximity or thickness to the bonds of our family and whenever we let those bonds fray or let those bonds erode then that actually is putting us on very vulnerable terrain when it comes to even our material you know world but especially our spiritual world. Um, so we're really asking people to kind of, um, you know, instead of just getting sucked into what everybody else is doing, the rat race, you, you have a, a house that you can barely afford the, you know, the payments for, and you, you're in the, the nice suburb with the good school district and, you know, whatever sort of the decisions that you've made, you know, what would it look like to be more intentional about this thing? What would it look like to, um, to follow the advice of, of one of my Mashaykh and Medina to have the Muslims all live together? Right. Next to each other in a neighborhood with a masjid, with different sort of institutions that we're talking about two completely different ways of life Um, and honestly, ways of life that are going to yield much better results, um, not just in the dunya, but also hopefully uh, in the afterlife. As you said, these are these are enormous topics, and each one of them um, deserves sort of separate treatment. And maybe one day inshallah we'll we'll get to do that. Um, but we're coming up upon an hour here, and I think that it might be most appropriate to to put this conversation to bed. Um, do you have any final thoughts or comments that you'd like to share?
0: Um, yeah, I think I think one thing that I'll say, or rather, the last thing that I'll say is, these conversations are so important to be had, and I think that when we talk about isms, whether it be secularism, liberalism, or otherwise, I think that awareness needs to be had that, um, you know, pervasive thought impacts us sometimes, you know, in subtle ways that, that requires deep thought and requires us to kind of take a step back and peel back the layers of specificity on how to kind of tackle and maneuver this, you know, for those of us, um, that, that are, are, are here and living under secular societies, you know, I, I think. You know, it's, it's, it's imperative that we acknowledge the elephant in the room that no one is safe, right? You have to, it it puts it on or should put that on our our radar. Um, every, every Muslim needs to be thinking about this and every Muslim needs to be thinking about creative ways on how we can maneuver and navigate this in a careful way where we don't lose our deen, um, and that we are taking steps forward within our capacity, um, um, as 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 an individual, and then again, again, as a collective. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us, you know, us the strength and tawfiq to do it.
1: mean, Excellent. Thank you so much, Dania Hanini, for being on the program today. We look forward to many more conversations, inshallah ta'ala. Subhanakallahumma okay. wa hamdaka sharaun la ilaha ilaha anta. Istawqfiraka wa atubu ilayk. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah.